Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast. Uh, my guest is Dr. Gabrielle Lyon. Uh, she's the founder of the Institute for Muscle-Centric Medicine. So we're going to talk about her work there. And she has a new book that's coming out uh, October 17th that we'll also discuss. So welcome, Gabrielle. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Yeah, I'm glad you're here. Tell me a bit about your background. How did you get into fitness? And then we'll go from there. Yeah, well, I actually was very lucky. I started early on in my career, very interested in nutritional sciences. Graduated high school at 17 and moved in with my godmother, who was one of the trailblazers in nutritional sciences. And I became very interested in the way that nutrition interacted with the body. And I realized at some point that I wanted to do more than nutrition, went to medical school, and finally circled back after finishing uh, my second residency. So I did two years of psychiatry and then three years of family medicine. I did an undergraduate in human nutrition and then circled back to a fellowship in nutritional sciences, geriatric medicine, and uh, was doing obesity research during that time. And that's where the Institute of Muscle-Centric Medicine was born. So why is it called that? And what's the premise of the Institute? It's called muscle-centric medicine because it really redefines muscle as the organ of longevity and as the ultimate focal point for health and wellness. And once we focus on skeletal muscle, then everything else falls into place. And I coined the term muscle-centric medicine when I started to see the interface of all my sickest patients. The sickest patients had one thing in common. It wasn't that they were overfat. It was that they were all under-muscled. And muscle-centric medicine acknowledges this approach that the health of one skeletal muscle significantly impacts all other organ systems within the body. And really, it's a perspective rooted in actionable behavioral recommendations capable of improving the physical health and sense of well-being of patients and anybody. Well, from what I understand, a lot of people think muscles are just from moving around. But uh, I believe glutamate is manufactured and or stored in the muscles, you know, an important neurotransmitter. Glucose disposal, I guess, is governed by the amount of muscle you have. So if you don't have much, it's very hard to control your blood sugar. I may be wrong on these things, but these are just some of the things that I've heard are very important besides not falling down and breaking your hip. You know? Yeah. Skeletal muscle is fascinating. We typically think about it as it relates to biomechanical processes, sport performance, strength. However, that's just a very small aspect of the importance of skeletal muscle from a medical perspective. Skeletal muscle, you'd mentioned, it releases glutamine. Glutamine is a semi-essential amino acid that, depending on the state of the individual, will require more glutamine. Glutamine is a energy source for cells of the immune system. So if someone were to get sick, contracting skeletal muscle releases glutamine. Glutamine, again, feeds not only gastrointestinal cells, but it also feeds lymphocytes. And that was one of the first indications that there is an interaction between skeletal muscle, contracting skeletal muscle, and the immune system, which is, again, fascinating. Another component of skeletal muscle is that it functions as an endocrine organ. 
and it releases myokines into the bloodstream. And myokines are hormones that travel throughout the body. They're small peptides that travel throughout the body and interface in different tissues and have different diverse metabolical metabolic roles, for example. We've all heard about BDNF, which is brain-derived neurotropic factor. This is perpetuated by contracting skeletal muscle when it releases something called capsepsin B or irisin. It stimulates the brain to then release brain-derived neurotropic factor, which influences neurogenesis. Again, just fascinating. There's a fascinating interplay between overall health and wellness and skeletal muscle. Well, you said twice contracting skeletal muscle. So if I'm sick and I don't have a lot of muscle, or even if I do, does the muscle need to be actively contracting? Meaning, do you have to do like a low-level form of, of muscle exertion in order for the muscles to kick out the proper factors to help your body defend itself against illness, let's say? That's a, a pretty astute question. It's a great question. There are two. So skeletal muscle at rest has certain properties versus active skeletal muscle. If an individual is sick, obviously, it's very difficult to train. The portion of skeletal muscle that becomes critical at this moment is the fact that skeletal muscle is an amino acid reservoir in highly catabolic states where energy uptake and the need for utilizing amino acids for tissue turnover, etc., your body will pull from these amino acid stores. And that is a critical aspect of having healthy skeletal muscle and maintaining it, not if, but when injury or illness strikes. That is, it's a really important point that you bring up. Contracting skeletal muscle obviously does other things that are critical to health and wellness. And could you do low levels of activity? I would certainly recommend it. It is critical. But again, are there maybe more advanced ways as we move into recognizing skeletal muscle as so pivotal in health and wellness? Would we use a stim unit or something of that nature to create contraction that will probably be implemented at some point? Oh, that's, yeah. I wonder if you did a bit of stim on different parts of your, your body that would activate enough muscle mass to, to help you heal. Or, you know, what is like, what's that protocol that someone's created? You know, maybe you, if you're sick, you don't really feel like doing anything, you could at least do X, Y, Z, and that'll help kind of activate you and make you feel better. Yes. there. I believe that there will be more advanced protocols. Uh, we are certainly working on some. Again, it's all relative to the extent of the illness or, or what's happening, but I do have some patients that we do put on stim suits when they have an injury or an illness. Again, it, it's highly individualized depending on what it is. I do, however, believe that that will eventually be the standard of care. Because right now, when an individual goes into the hospital, they are put on a bed rest or they are made to not be ambulatory. The incremental changes will start there within getting individuals up and walking, not feeding them in bed. But on a more advanced level, there will be, I believe, more future protocols that are not just based on the individual provider, but hopefully more globally. What other things can muscle do that people don't know about? Well, of course, there's that interface. As it relates to myokine release, whether it's interleukin-6, irisin, those kinds of BDNF, myokines, most people are not aware of that. You mentioned glutamine, so your audience is probably aware that contracting skeletal muscle releases glutamine. Another important aspect of skeletal muscle that is largely underappreciated is that it is a nutrient-sensing organ system, that the capacity to sense nutrients as we age decreases, but it senses the quality of muscle of the quality of 
the nutrition of the diet, particularly the quality of the protein. Skeletal muscle as a nutrient sensing organ senses the amount of leucine, which is one of the branch chain amino acids that really stimulates this muscle protein synthetic response. What's important for your listener to understand is there are a number of changes that happen within skeletal muscle as we age, whether it's for lack of activity or the normal biological process, but skeletal muscle becomes somewhat anabolically resistant, meaning that the efficiency of protein utilization goes down, but that efficiency can be corrected for with having an appropriate amount of amino acids or essentially dietary protein to make up for that. And that that's very interesting because it's not necessarily theory, right? This is something that someone could do immediately by adding in 30 to 50 grams of dietary protein at that first meal. They will get a response where their tissue can then look like a younger tissue and respond like a younger tissue. Yeah. Have you ever heard of muscle testing? I mean, you can think it's BS, but it brings it to mind. Like someone will hold a vitamin or something like that, or, and they'll try to push down on their arm. And then they'll hold something else or not hold something, and then they'll push down on their arm. And if they see a difference in the resistance strength of the muscle, that'll tell them that this substance is good for them or not. Again, it may be woo-woo to you, but it's interesting that you said muscles can sense certain nutrients. Perhaps that's tied into it. I don't know. It can sense, but the, the mechanism is, is different. So the, the sensing mechanism, as far as muscle testing, I can't speak to that, but I certainly can tell you the, the mechanism behind the decreased sensation or anabolic resistance. So mechanistically, we have an answer. Muscle testing, I do know a lot of people that have implemented that, but I certainly couldn't speak to the pathway. I, I couldn't give an answer to that pathway, but it would be interesting to see if there is one. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click on Support Us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit FindingGeniusPodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. Okay. And then I, I also mentioned, I don't know if this is the case, but so I've worn like a Dexcom, you know, or a Lifestyle Libre for, you know, type 2 diabetes. Not that I have it, but I wanted to check my blood sugars and see what happens. So I noticed, you know, when I would eat a meal, if my blood sugar would go high, I'd go for a walk for like 15, 20 minutes, and it would bring it down like, I don't know, probably 40, 50 points. And then I had read that muscle appears to be a good disposal uh, for glucose, you know, because the muscles use up a lot of glucose. So have you run into that? And uh, what, what are your thoughts there? Delta muscle is the site for 80% of glucose disposal at rest, meaning after you eat the non-contractile tissue skeletal muscle is the site for glucose disposal. The exciting part about it is exactly what you said. You can leverage exercise to utilize glucose. You could immediately see a change, which is incredible. And that is one strategy that I talk about in the book, Forever Strong, is how can we leverage skeletal muscle to make immediate impact? Okay. But, you know, have you seen that skeletal muscle, again, helps, helps uh, regulate blood sugar? It does. You know, people with very little skeletal muscle, like what happens to them? Do they Are they unable to keep their blood sugar in check? Do they have like a lot of highs, a lot of 
flows, like what happens. Yeah. And that is that is actually what is seen, especially with the aging population. Individuals that go on bed rest or lose a large amount of muscle mass, we see increase in insulin resistance, increase in blood sugar, and increase in levels of insulin to try to co-regulate that increase in blood sugar. Yes, that is a very common and important and recognizable characteristic that does happen. So what are some of the other sequelae, you know, when someone's getting older, let's say uh, they're 70 and their muscle mass is really, really depleted and they're just not doing well. What will they experience versus, let's say, another 70-year-old that is keeping up, you know, even at a low level, they're going to the gym, they're lifting somewhat, they're walking, they're active, they're maintaining their muscle? Another really great question. When we think about aging, one could highlight the hallmarks of aging. And one of the hallmarks of aging is, again, this loss of proteostasis, decrease in nutrient sensing, of the the meal through muscle, but also changes in mitochondria and cellular senescence. There's a, a whole host of things that happen, but one that they could physically feel is when you lose skeletal muscle, you lose mitochondria. Mitochondria generate energy. And when, you know, anecdotally, what we typically hear is those individuals that lose mitochondria, they will feel it from, they'll feel more fatigued. Because again, this is the energy generating component. When you maintain skeletal muscle mass, you maintain your mitochondria, your mitochondrial health. And that becomes very important, not just for uh, blood sugar regulation, but overall energy as well as the health and wellness of the entire body. Hmm, great. So what, how has this changed how you, how you practice? Like, What do you recommend to clients and when and why? I, you know, in general, I know everyone's different. Well, muscle-centric medicine, I coined that term in 2015, and the whole practice is all about skeletal muscle. And that is our focal point. Nutrition is the easiest lever to pull. We focus a large amount of energy on nutrition. We focus a large amount of energy on the health of skeletal muscle and other ailments or low levels of inflammation, et cetera. We, when it comes to skeletal muscle, definitely hormone replacement and hormones in general are very important, making sure that your thyroid is balanced, because obviously that is a component of metabolism, making sure that you're getting sleep. We know that one night of sleep deprivation can influence muscle protein synthesis by 18%. And yeah, as anyone would tell you that medical practice, as you know, is, is highly individualized and complex, but we do address body fat as well as uh, skeletal muscle and then tracking markers is really important. So what's a protocol for, you know, for clients? Do they come to you and stay with you for years? Do you help them with like workout protocols or like what, you know, yeah. how is it, what's it like to be a patient of you guys versus a regular doctor? Uh, we do all the above. When it comes to the protocols, I've actually outlined them beautifully in the book. The book took two years to write, but 20 years of experience. And the, the book helps an individual pick what their track would be, whether it's for longevity, whether it's for hypertrophy or weight loss. And then we would design a diet. It allows them to do it themselves the, to design a diet that they can execute. And we start with dietary protein, which is the most essential macronutrient. And we recommend anywhere from 0.7 to 1 gram per pound ideal body weight. And then I outline how an individual would break that up depending on where they are in life to make it easy and second nature. And again, by the way, this book is readable for everybody. Also in the book, we highlight where an individual should begin with resistance training and exercise in general. Typically, we recommend three days a week, 10 sets per muscle group throughout that week. And then after that, if they get more advanced, there's other layers to that, whether it's high intensity interval training or some kind of zone two training. Oh, wait, what do you mean zone two training? 
where you could talk and do some kind of cardiovascular activity at the same time. Oh, okay. So you're not going so hard. You're like, no, yes. As in, you know, like that kind of thing, right? You could still have a conversation. Yeah. Yep. No, I just remember in, uh, in college running, when I first started running, and, you know, my friend would try to talk to me and he was in good shape. And I would say, yes, no, I can't talk, you know. <laughs> I mean, after a while, when I got in shape, I could talk to him while we jogged slowly. So it, it got better, you know. Yeah. I, I think that those are really good questions. And also really good insights. That would not be considered zone two training. That would be a little bit more advanced. But again, if I was going to pick one modality of exercise, I would pick resistance training. All right. So lifting in the weights, yeah. In order for people to actually grow their muscle. Okay. So when someone's older, you know, 60, 70 plus, let's say, or even 50 plus, does the resistance training need to actively build muscle or is it enough to maintain? Like, can you go to a lower level where it'll just keep you where you're at? Like what? To what level and, and degree do you need to do resistance training to see benefits? You could maintain. That would probably be the focus. For most people, it is more difficult to put on strength and mass as you age, but it is not impossible. With a targeted program, a 75-year-old could put on both muscle mass and gain strength at the same time. Typically, it takes a very low threshold of activity to maintain skeletal muscle, and it is important to maintain what you have. Me personally, as a practicing physician, I recommend that individuals strive for improvement over time. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Is there a, a, you know, in days a week or, you know, length yeah. of the exercise, the type of exercises, like what, what's important about all that stuff? Well, again, there's a lot of ways to get the end result. And typically what an individual is looking for is for an adaptation. There are multiple ways to skin a cat whether you're looking for hypertrophy or you're looking for strength. And the normal repetition continuum, the rep range continuum, typically people think about strength as one to five reps. Hypertrophy is eight to 12. Endurance is 15 plus. But again, what we're looking for is we are looking to elicit adaptations. And however an individual does that, you could potentially do lower weight, higher rep and gain strength or lower weight, higher rep, and gain somewhat of hypertrophy, especially the the data on the older individuals. It doesn't have to be, obviously, a one rep max. Here is how I recommend doing it and thinking about it from a physician standpoint is that starting with body weight is great. Starting with body weight movements, whether it's squat, push-up, lunges, being able to move your body against its own weight is imp imperative. The next layer to that would be utilizing bands, utilizing some kind of resistance bands, making sure that you obviously are not going to injure yourself and maybe getting more comfortable with the execution. The final level to this, and I do get a little bit of pushback, is moving loads through space, meaning I do think that whether it is a machine or whether it is some kind of kettlebell, it could just be picking it up and carrying it. Some kind of free weight is also really essential. The reason it becomes essential is the movements that you have to do need to translate to real life. Translating to real life means being able to get up off the floor if you fall, picking up groceries, opening a door, moving things through space, being able to respond adequately to your environment. And and that's that how yeah. And, and I think it's really underappreciated and not highlighted enough. Oftentimes people will, to a lesser extent, stay at body weight and bands and potentially machines. But don't, I, my caveat is you don't want to wait till the time that you need to be able to move and take action to be the time that you practice to see if you can do it. Yeah, no, it makes sense. I realized that I think when I, you know, when I turned 40, a, a good exercise for people would be like, lay down on the floor, stand up again, lay down on the floor, stand up again. Doing that 10 times, I think it'd be really hard 
for a lot of people, you know, 40 or 50 and up. But it's just an example of functionality. Like, yeah, if you can't get out of bed, you're in trouble. If you can't sit down on the toilet or stand up from the toilet without help, you're in trouble, you know, getting, getting into a car. I mean, doing basic stuff like that. So functional training is uh, is critically important, it sounds like. It is. And we can all appreciate that. And it really has to be highlighted. And the idea that walking is enough, walking is just part of moving. It's it's not enough. Walking is wonderful, but there should be goals for activity. And again, being able to respond to your environment is critical. Being able to meet the demands of the environment. Hmm. Okay. Um, <laughs> so is everyone able to do some level of training or is there like a point where it's quote unquote too late? Never. And, uh, you know, okay. It's amazing. Never. It's never too late to be forever strong ever. And that's what's important is that, you know, in society right now, again, this is another reason I wrote the book is that we're so hyper-focused on what we have to lose. We have to lose weight. We have to lose body fat. And it becomes an extremely limiting and disempowering framework for execution versus thinking about what it is that we have to gain. And by shifting the process of thought to what we have to gain, that allows us to take massive action because there is not this overarching inhibition or analysis by paralysis because we're not taking it out of our control. You, can, you can't control how much weight you're, quote, going to lose, but you can definitely control how much weight you're going to pick up, how oftentimes you are going to be training. The, the things that we can control, we must control. And also, by the way, all we do is talk about obesity as if obesity is the root cause. These diseases begin in skeletal muscle decades before. It is not a obesity. Diseases. In- yes. Diseases of aging that we think about. Diabetes, obesity, Alzheimer's, cardiovascular disease. We talk about these things as if they are, quote, out there and as if they are the end result. And these are all, and I, I'm speaking in absolutes, that these are the result of obesity, et cetera, and the things that ride along with it. But if you were to take a step back, the root cause is unhealthy skeletal muscle. You have to attack something at the root. We've already tried this paradigm of thinking over the last 50 years of trying to address obesity as the thing. It's not obesity. It's unhealthy skeletal muscle. Well, what constitutes unhealthy muscle? Just the lack of it? Or is does it can it exist in certain forms where it's just, uh, it's there but not healthy? A ribeye steak. If your muscle looks like a ribeye steak, you have unhealthy skeletal muscle. If your muscle looks like a filet, you have healthy skeletal muscle. You will get a ribeye steak if you are largely sedentary over time. If you are not emptying the tank through glycogen flux and utilizing stored glycogen and other intramuscular fatty acids, then your skeletal muscle will become unhealthy. A lack of skeletal muscle is also a problem, but the muscle that you have, when that becomes unhealthy, that is an issue in and of itself. So, you know, with muscle, you said if it looks like a ribeye steak, that's no good. Is that just because the person is, is so overweight that there's fat showing up now in the muscle? Or like, why would someone uh, look like that? Again, unhealthy lifestyle over time. When people gain body fat, they don't just gain body fat in one particular spot. You also gain it talk about visceral fat, you also gain it, you gain intramuscular fat over time. Oh, really? How do you gain that? <laughs> yeah. How does uh, intramuscular fat occur? That's weird. Yeah. Intramuscular fat occurs when you are sedentary. When you are not exercising sure. that tissue, there is a decrease in flux. That decrease in flux generates intramuscular adipose tissue. That's really interesting. What does that do to the functioning of muscles? Like, has anyone studied that? They have. Decreases function. Not only that, it also decreases capacity of skeletal muscle. It increases the risk of fibrosis, increases the risk of other tissue being formed like connective tissue, but it 
also affects the health and efficiency of skeletal muscle. Weird. Does it distort the chains or ropes of muscle, like make them bulge out or can they not be able to contract in the right shape and dimension? I think that all of that is reasonable. Again, there's multiple different places that fat can lay down within skeletal muscle. And depending on where that fat lays down, it can distort both use and mobility. For example, intermuscular adipose tissue is a predictor of both muscle function and, and mobility in older adults. That is important to recognize that when you get tissue that is in and around skeletal muscle, it can change not just the metabolic muscle, but also the mobility. There is a increased association of challenges with lo locomotive, locomotion. One of the other things is I think it's important to point out that we don't typically look at uh, skeletal muscle. We don't typically do a CT or MRI imaging of skeletal muscle. It's not mm. done. And that is why skeletal muscle has been so underrepresented because we haven't been directly measuring it. And the other thing is once we begin to measure skeletal muscle mass directly, we are going to see the importance of mass as well as strength. It is something that is not looked at directly now. So a DEXA doesn't directly look at skeletal muscle. A DEXA looks at bone and, and body fat and the rest is extrapolated. Hmm. Has anyone done an experiment where someone has like a, you know, a ribeye muscle, they, they work it out for like six months and does it turn into a, a better type muscle? Does the fat get squeezed out or converted or what happens to it in someone that, that again, works out to rehabilitate a fatty muscle? Funny, funny enough, there is something called the, it, it's the athlete's paradox. Typically with training, there is intramuscular fat that is used or intramuscular triglycerides that are used as energy. I haven't looked at studies that implement a certain amount of exercise and then what is the outcome. But I, I do think that that would be fascinating to see if we could quantify uh, at the length of time. I, again, the thing with skeletal muscles, number one, we haven't been measuring it directly. We're still not measuring it really directly. And number two, how much exercise would be needed to move some of the toxic lipid metabolites out. I'm not sure that we have that answer, but I'm inspired to look at, I'm actually very inspired to see if we could find that. Well, first of all, what instrumentation can visualize your skeletal muscle and the fat content, the fat distribution of it? CT, MRI. Um, there's some interest in ultrasound. But again, where I think it's going to be most helpful is when they start to institute something called a D3 creatine, where it's a deuterated creatine and, and skeletal muscle is the primary site for creatine. And that is not yet used routinely, but it will. Yeah, I guess maybe, a, well, not simple, nothing simple, but if you were to do an experiment where people, um, you know, let's say had, uh, I don't know, a CT of their arms or a leg or something, you know, something not, not, not full body. And you looked at, again, the percentage of fat, where it was and all that. And you put them on a workout protocol for eight weeks, you know, muscle building, resistance training. And then you do it again after eight weeks. You know, it'll be interesting to see what the changes are. Does the fat, again, get redistributed, absorbed, changed, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera? Yeah. I mean, it would be utilized, but it, it's a great question. I'm going to see if there's a if there's literature out there with a, in a dose-dependent nature. It would be very fascinating to see. What about someone that's doing intermittent fasting? Would it pull preference? Like, is the um, is the fat in the muscle the last in and the first out, or is it a, a form of fat that will stay there until the very end? Like, like how does the body appear to use it? Uh, typically through exercise. It's interesting because glycogen is not, for example, glycogen is not able to be utilized directly to maintain blood sugar. 
The same would go for, obviously, fatty acids within skeletal muscle aren't required. But as it relates to typically how it works is what is within skeletal muscle is used by skeletal muscle. In fasting, that would not be the primary source that it would pull from. Another great question. Interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that, that you get you know, this fat and marbling inside the muscle, but it makes total sense. Yeah, very, very interesting. Hmm. Are there master muscles in the body or certain muscles that appear to be instructing other muscles or governing their behavior? No, not necessarily, but muscle makes up 40% of the body weight. And typically what we use the most is our legs. And, and that is likely the site of potentially where insulin resistance could be found early on. But there is not a muscle that would orchestrate all the other muscles, which is what makes muscle so unique, is that skeletal muscle is under voluntary control. Um, what I guess essentially muscle is, is like an exocrine organ, right? I mean, again, it produces its own hormones and, and various things. It interacts, I'm sure, with all the regular organs of our body. But are there any preferential organs that seem to interact with the muscle in a unique way or, you know, more often than other ones? Many of them. Many. It just depends on when skeletal muscle contracts and it releases myokines, which these myokines are released in direct relation to the kind of activity and the length of activity. Uh, mostly endurance exercise has been studied also obviously resistance exercise. And myokines interleu interleukin-6 interact with liver. They augment lipolysis, the breakdown of fat. Other myokines interact with the brain and bone. There's 600 or more different myokines. This is one reason why exercise is so important is that exercise in and of itself, the whole body change in the homeostatic mechanisms within the body, the biggest driver of that would be exercise. Nothing is more impactful as it relates to the interplay of all organ systems from cardiovascular to blood flow to liver. There's the mechanical aspect and then there's the biochemical process. And one thing came to mind, you know, fast twitch versus slow twitch muscles. You know, when people that have not been working out, what would be the ratio and people that work out, what's the ratio? Was it more governed by genetics? And how is it important what the ratio is? What you're talking about is skeletal muscle uh, fiber types. And when you think about skeletal muscle, oftentimes we just say grossly skeletal muscle, but there are three types of muscle. There's skeletal, smooth, and cardiac. Again, skeletal muscle makes up 40% of the, an individual's body weight. There's two broad classes. There's slow twitch type one. This is high in mitochondrial density. It's metabolically active. It's active at rest. The primary site for fatty acid oxidation is here. It has high myoglobin, burns, again, both carbohydrates and fats. ATP, it has relatively low levels of glycogen storage. When an individual is eating food, again, you must move blood glucose out of the bloodstream excess and into tissues. The primary site for that is glycogen storage. Type 1 fibers, which are small cross-sectional areas. These are smaller fibers. Uh, some can be postural. Some of these are these slow twitch muscles have higher endurance. They are trained through endurance. And they are not big muscles versus a fast twitch muscle, which would be a type two. They have low mitochondrial density, low metabolic activity at rest, but high levels of glycogen and also are larger due to glycogen and water. They have lower levels of endurance, but high force production. These are things that make you strong and big and kind of buff. And one thing that happens is, is you can shift 
fiber types from type one to type two. And again, we're speaking about this in absolutes, but it is a pretty hybrid and complex process. Okay. Yeah. No, I was just wondering, again, if people shift from, from one muscle type predominance to another, you know, with use or disuse. That's what I was wondering, I guess. There, it is believed that these type two fibers transition to type one fibers become smaller over time, whether it is that they transition or that we just lose fiber types. I was actually just talking about this on my podcast. We created a provider course, a muscle-centric medicine provider course to train up other physicians, to train up health coaches and trainers in some of these core fundamental fundamental principles. And that was one of the things that we covered. There's still some ambiguous conversation. Is it is it fully a loss of tissue or is it a transition of fiber types? But either way, you can do something about it. It doesn't, it is not just because it happens, doesn't mean it has to happen. Yeah, but there's no data yet on, again, how the predominance leads to someone, you know, experiencing sarcopenia or not. Again, if they try to build it back up, what happens to the fiber types? It's, it sounds like that research hasn't been done yet. I mean, it could be. I'm I'm not aware of it. It, it certainly could be. Again, what I've seen is is a lot of the data is mixed as to what the ultimate outcome is. Has anyone, I mean, uh, men versus women, is there a big difference as they age and they care, you know, what the muscle type is like, how much fat, the distribution, et cetera? Well, yes. Uh, women, certainly when they go through menopause, seems to be a rapid decline in skeletal muscle mass. And whether that is estrogen, testosterone, or progesterone, they, during men- the menopause transition is when they're most likely to lose skeletal muscle mass. Men seem to have a better time at maintaining, and that may be because they're starting with more and they maintain higher levels potentially of testosterone. So that that would be how I think about that aspect of it. And ultimately, both groups will lose tissue. The rate is thought to be faster in women, but again, uh, women aren't necessarily, we don't have a ton of data. You know, typically a lot of the studies are not women, but the, the working premise right now is that both men and women lose it. Women might lose it somewhat quicker. Hmm. Okay. And testosterone, I guess men, you know, have uh, much higher levels and they decline as they get older. As uh, anyone studied, you know, the role of testosterone, should testosterone hormone replacement be part of the protocol for someone that's older that's that wants to build muscle? I believe it should be. I think that we're also going to start to see more studies coming out. I know that they're working on one at WashU where I did my fellowship re- addressing that question. What does testosterone do? We know that testosterone is an anabolic hormone and it does increase muscle fiber size. We also know that it can improve strength. Is it in a dose-dependent manner? Not necessarily, but it certainly also can protect skeletal muscle and um, some component of that can protect bone. I do believe that hormone replacement is a critical role in maintaining the health of skeletal muscle, but you don't have to do it. As long as your training is adequate, there's a potential that you can counteract that. Hmm. Okay. Makes sense. Well, very good. What's the best place for people to find out more about your work? Where can they go? You can go to my website, drgabriellelyon.com. They can purchase my book. We're giving away a whole bunch of free stuff that is amazing with the book. And that is, again, on drgabriellelyon.com. You can go to Amazon to get my book, Forever Strong. There, I also have a podcast called The Dr. Gabrielle Lyon Show, whole host of things. We are still seeing patients. All of that information can be found out on my website and a great newsletter that breaks down some of these studies and questions that you are um, so astutely bringing up. Okay, very good. And again, October 17th, your book will be out. 
So thank you, Gabrielle, for coming on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you so much. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.